This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Brandy with you, looking at everything from the latest PMI numbers, which came out while we were on air, and fortunately with an economist, Ed Bell, Senior Director of Market Economics at Emirates NBD. Also having a look at what the new announcement to come from Expo could mean for the property market. They're going to launch a couple of residential communities in the next fortnight. We've been speaking to Matt Gregory, the CCO of Hauser, and looking with the guys from the Meridian Dubai Hotel and Conference Centre at what Ramadan could mean for the Iftar business. All of that, plus a big survey on whether or not you got a bonus last year. Where, here in the UAE, we've got the power. What kind of power have we got? Uh, we have soft power, Richard Dean. How do we know this? Uh, because they've put it in an index. We do like a good index here on the business breakfast. Uh, Brand Finance is the they. Uh, they have ranked the world's top 10 soft power countries. We're talking about influence, aren't we? We are indeed, yes. And the UAE has jumped five places to 10th in that index. America is first. The United Kingdom and Germany make up the top three as well. The UAE is sandwiched between Italy, just above us, and Sweden, just below us. We wanted to find out more. So we've been speaking to one of the guys who put the index together. He is Andrew Campbell with the company Brand Finance, Managing Director for the Middle East. He spoke to our producer, Mohammed Suleiman, and this is what he had to say. So we've been tracking the performance of nation brands as well as corporate brands for many years now. And about four years ago, we started tracking soft power. And by soft power, we we mean a nation's ability to influence the preferences and behaviors of various actors in the international arena, such as states and corporations, communities, public, etc., through attraction or persuasion rather than coercion. Now, we think this is important because soft power is one of the key levers of exercising power alongside coercive power and economic power and really is a question of getting others to want what you want through proving your shared values and norms. So how do you measure it? What is used to put together the rankings? Our index is based on market research. It's a perception index. And we ask questions in over 100 countries and we ask questions about 121 countries. And we ask questions such as familiarity, influence, the reputation of the country, and then performance across eight pillars, which include business and trade, governance, international relations, culture and heritage, media and communications, education and science, people and values, and sustainable future. And we tabulate all of those results uh, into a model, which we then uh, assimilate and uh, produce our rankings. That's the view of the guys from Brand Finance. You heard the voice of Andrew Campbell, who's the Managing Director for the Middle East, speaking to our producer, Mohammed Suleiman. Now, time is four minutes before eight on the business breakfast, and some of us have just got paid.
Yeah, we're looking at a new survey coming out from the guys at Zurich. They've done it with YouGov, having a look at whether or not people got a bonus last year. And nearly half of those who were interviewed said, yeah, I did. They spoke to 1,200 people, uh, nearly 50% saying they got a bonus. Uh, what size? Around a third, 31% said it was up to 20,000 dirhams. Uh, 12% who did get a bonus said it was up to 50,000 dirhams. Uh, and 5% said more than 50,000. Uh, we were a little bit surprised, but people are getting in touch with us on the text message uh, system saying, yep, we got bonuses, uh, talking about what they did with them, because that's the other half of this survey. People were very sensible. Uh, The main thing people did, and this may come as no surprise um, hearing us talk about the real estate industry, which we will be a little bit later on. A quarter said they were looking to use it to invest in property. Uh, Retirement savings was the second most popular thing to do. And it's all very sensible stuff. Paying off debts, saving for your children's education. The Maldives holiday comes quite low down. And indeed, that's what people are telling us as well. Chet's got in touch to say, uh, mortgage payment top up because I know my fixed term rate is going to end next year. We oh, Chet, up- I feel your pain. I've got a mortgage. My fixed term rate has already ended. Whoa, daring me. It's brutal. You're just about to take out a massive mortgage, aren't you? I wouldn't say massive. Let's see how we go. We're, we're, <laughs> we're not at the end of this game yet. Um, let's have a look at what our Insta poll is says because we said what you're doing saving or splurging are you being sensible or are you rewarding yourself after a couple of years of covid 33 percent are splurging good luck to you enjoy it but 67 percent two-thirds say that they are making a sensible investment with any kind of bonus or whatever compensation that they've had over the past few weeks or so Yeah, and I can understand. And you've got a bit of FOMO going on as well, I think, particularly in the property um, market as to if you see other people doing it, you think, am I being an idiot by not doing it as well? And rising rents certainly feed into that. We've got the guys from Hauser on a little bit later on. And we're going to be having a look at whether we are seeing almost a compartmentalising of the property market here in the UAE. Matt Gregory from Hauser is coming in with a new-to-me term, which is commuter communities. Um, This is on the back of a new launch coming up from the guys at Expo. They're going to be launching a couple of residential communities in the next two weeks. And and he's calling them commuter communities, that people are taking the lower rent uh, and a slightly longer commute. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. Let's start in our energy segment with the non-oil economy, which is something of an oxymoron. But uh, we are very pleased to have Ed Bell in the studio with us this morning. Uh, Regular voice from Emirates MBD, where he is the Senior Director of Market Economics. Morning, Ed. Good morning. I'm just going to pull these brand new numbers up in front of me because we do have the new Purchasing Managers Index. Uh, Coming in, showing growth, uh, showing that we are still over that magic 50% mark. What are you making of these numbers? Yeah, we had a slight pickup for the February numbers. They've just come out to 54.3. Just make sure I get the numbers correct. So it's still quite robust. And I mean, even the the, the um, sort of calendar year low or month, uh, 12 month low that we had in January of 54.1, that's still a pretty good print as far as a PMI index is reported. So we're certainly down from the kind of very robust levels we saw across much of 
2022. But I don't think we're at any phase where uh, we're really worried about a substantial slowdown, at least as reported from the PMI numbers. When you look into some of the details, things like output, so what's actually being processed by businesses was up quite nicely last month. And a lot of the other trends that we've seen really over the last couple of years from the PMI readings, things like uh, cons- or firms being squeezed from higher input costs, but not really being able to pass them on to their um, their customers. And the, so that's squeezing margins. That trend seems to be really much well in, in place in the data that we're seeing. The one thing I can see, and we've literally had these numbers in front of us for 30 seconds, by the way, is that there's a lot of howevers and there's a lot of buts and there's a lot of meanwhiles. So, and indeed, David Owen um, from S&P who puts these together is talking about conflicting signals. Pace is rising, uh, but still still slower than we saw um, before the uh, pandemic. Supply chain conditions are strengthening. However, still seeing, as you say, um, those uh, rise in producer prices. Where are we in the sort of glass half full? Well, interesting. We probably are about exactly 50% full in terms of the outlook. So by all means, um, when we look at the data for the UAE, and I think even when we look more broadly at the kind of global context, we're we're, uh, two months into the year now, everyone is really worried about 2023 being an absolutely awful year. Um, But it hasn't quite turned out that way. So most of the economic indicators we've been seeing, whether they're locally, whether they're internationally, have been holding up pretty well. And I think the PMIs that we're getting from the region sort of are tantamount to that as well. Which brings us to oil, which has been doing its own sort of jiggy little dance over the, the last week, but not doing anything particularly interesting. Up 2%, down 2%, um, as it seems to try and take stock of where the global economy is headed. Uh, we go up a couple of percentage points. All the analysts say, oh, that's China. We go down a couple of percentage points. Everyone says that's interest rates. What's the biggest factor weighing in on the oil price at the moment? Yeah, it's that competing uh, narratives, I think, between what's happening in the fundamental side of the market, the reopening of China, anticipation for increased demand, the fact that, you know, the economic data that we're seeing isn't showing this kind of calamitous drop. So that's going to mean that oil consumption is probably not going to fall as much as we had been worried about, say, at the end of last year. But balanced against that is the fact that interest rates are going to be trending much higher than I think anybody had really been pitching when we had sort of looked into 2023 about six months ago. And so that has a couple of things in terms of cooling demand, but also it has a factor in strengthening the dollar when the Fed hikes rates. And that unfortunately will weigh down on commodity prices, including oil prices. Remind us how important China is, because we keep talking about the return of of Chinese demand. We've had some good manufacturing uh, and other data out in the last week, some more this morning. How big a player is China when it comes to using energy? Yeah, well, it's an enormous uh, oil consumer. So if you look at the US, which is kind of your, your benchmark for global oil consumption, consumes about 20 million barrels a day uh, of oil. China is sort of around 12 to 13. So it's not quite the same size as the United States, but it's still a very large consumer, the world's largest importer of energy as well. Uh, and we've had it kind of an economy that's been restrained for so long. When you look at some indicators that they're starting to turn around, there's a lot of hope there in energy markets that things are going to improve quite dramatically. So one indicator that I've been looking at is uh, the drop in Chinese airline travel from before the pandemic to where we are now, 
We've seen a lot of those other indicators have recovered very nicely from 2021 onwards and actually exceeded the pre-pandemic kind of norms. Uh, in China, that is very much not the case. So you have this big sort of deficit of Chinese airline travelers, and there's some estimates that just the airline component alone, just jet fuel for China, could account for about 900,000 barrels a day of oil demand growth in China. So that would be a big pull, a big uptake in Chinese oil consumption this year. And yet, we don't see OPEC turning on the uh, taps. We're seeing Russia taking about half a million barrels out of the uh, the market, their own production from this month. What does all of that mean for supply? Yeah, when we look at the supply picture for 23, we expect it to be relatively constrained. As you say, uh, OPEC Plus is maintaining a pretty cautious stance on production this year, so not planning to unwind the cuts that it announced in October last year, and rather would like to see the fundamental story actually materialize in terms of stronger demand before they add anything back into the market. Um, also, when we look Beyond the OPEC Plus alliance, if you look at the United States, the kind of pace of production growth you're seeing, well, we actually haven't really seen any production growth this year from the U.S., and there's been some warnings from officials uh, in, in the U.S. that the kind of rapid pace of growth we've seen from the, the shale basin or shale producers in the U.S., we're not going to see what we've seen in the past. So in the last couple of years, when we had good years in the U.S. oil market, you would get as much as a million barrels a day plus of, of oil production growth. This year, they're targeting around 300,000 barrels. So it's really going to be a shade on what we had experienced previously. So a pretty constrained outlook, I think, in terms of the supply side. And we've had some pretty stark warnings from big hitters in the oil market, the heads of, of Aramco this week, as well as Chevron, uh, warning that basically when we get to the end of this year, there's not really any extra oil that's available. So if you have China recovering robustly, you don't have a, a really calamitous recession in markets like the United States or the uh, the European Union, there's not going to be a lot of extra demand, extra supply available to meet that demand. Okay, then we've got one minute left with you. Why then, given that oil is forward-looking, these contracts are bought, you know, for further down the the track when we actually want the oil. Why isn't it higher? if we're worried about a supply crunch towards the end of the year? Yeah, I think the, the focus right now in financial markets is getting out of the misalignment that we have between markets and the Federal Reserve in terms of the outlook for interest rates. So that is kind of sucking up all the financial market attention uh, at the moment, and it's leading to some ructions in other markets. So you're not, say, getting the oil market focusing on the actual movement of barrels around the world in a couple of months' time. It's really just more focused as a, as a reflection of what's been happening in other elements of financial financial markets. And as the dollar goes higher, as rates go higher, that's going to be weighing on what we call risk assets, things like commodities, as well as the oil price. 20 seconds then, to tie it back to our UAE PMI non-oil economy, what does this oil sector mean for the UAE as a whole? Well, we don't think that uh, the oil sector is really going to be contributing much to growth this year. If OPEC plus holds its production plans in place, then we're probably going to see flat to maybe even negative uh, share from the oil sector this year. It's going to be small. It's not going to be a huge drag on the economy, but we're not going to get the big boost to GDP that we have from the oil sector like we did in 2022. Ed Bell is Senior Director of Market Economics at Emirates MBD, uh, talking to us about fairly range-bound oil at the moment and very gamely taking those fresh out of the oven PMI numbers and putting them in context for us. Thanks for your time. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. There is no shortage of new developments being announced at the moment. The inbox is full of them. But one in particular 
Potentially two have really caught our attention and that's because they've come out from Expo City, Dubai. They're going to be announced formally in just under a fortnight. But what does it mean for Dubai South? Matt Gregory is the CCO of Hauser. Matt, it's lovely to see you. Good morning. Good morning to you. Expo City, Dubai South. How big a community could this become? I think like you've mentioned there, right, we don't know too much about it yet. I think in a week or so's time, we should really find out. But uh, from what they've sort of alluded to, we have apartments, townhouses and villas. Um, we have a 10 kilometer cycle track. We have a five kilometer running track. Um, so I would imagine it's going to be pretty big. To put it into context, Dubai Hills, the running track there is 2.4 kilometers. So uh, we're looking at double the size um, with parks and green spaces and you know, all the trappings that you would imagine from a, from a new community with the, uh, the sort of the layer or the filter of sustainability and the connected city and the 15 minute city and all the things they've talked about here. So I think that we've got uh, what might be a, a real pretty cool, if we want to call it one, community that's going to be turning up not too far away from where we are now. Now, you've coined a bit of jargon (laughs) that Richard and I have jumped on this morning. Commuter communities. Is this a sea change here in Dubai? So... Look, when I was doing some, as everyone does, right, we come on the radio, we do some research last night and I was tapping out an email and thought, hey, this is a, this is a phrase that sort of looks and sounds like actually we should, we should use quite a lot here in Dubai because I think that you know, everyone talks about communities, the town square community. I live in the Springs. It's a community. Um, you know, Springs, we are talking 15, 10 minutes from here probably, I think this morning. Um, whereas if you go out of town, we talked about it a lot on this show, certainly over the last year since we've been doing it and that's the migration out. In fact, you guys have been talking about it since 2020. Migration out towards places like Town Square, Moodon, um, and various other communities that are commutable now. Right? And you guys said it at 6 a.m. this morning. You said, but when you guys came out here, uh, what, 20 years ago? Um, commuting was the charger to, to Dubai, right? And, and when we're talking Dubai, we're not even talking where we are now. Um, so people now are happy to spend half an hour in their car, go out, benefit from cheaper rents, benefit from cheaper sale prices um, in order to spend half an hour to get to the marina, which I used as the, the center point for my map last night. Are we going to end up, I mean, is this kind of almost a Londonification where we're going to have sort of zone one, zone three, zone four? I think, you know, we have that on the metro already. Like you can buy a metro ticket for different zones. And I think that if you go out towards uh, marina, it's out to the further zones than when you get into the to the sort of main part in old Dubai. Um, but yeah, I think you will, right? We're not likely to have... Uh, public transport that connects these communities so you've got to have a car uh, you need to be able to be a, you need to feel that you can sit in there when I was looking at it this morning so I looked at it last night town square if we take that 33 minutes commute a half past eight last night to Dubai Marina half past seven this morning it was 52 minutes so yeah. you know there is quite a big uh, change if you like when we look at uh, what you guys do here on the radio you look at the traffic reports both Expo City and Expo Golf Villas didn't change so they're exactly the same this morning as they were at 8.30. But they didn't change yet because they're not full of people yet. Not full of people. But also, if you look around them as well, you look. Town Square is probably the, the periphery of where you're likely to go at this moment in time, down our Quadra Road. So you're meeting all the other communities as you go down that road. You've got Mudon down there. You've got Cherrywoods, which has just come out. You've got um, Arabian Ranches and all the other communities that are on that belt. And they're looking to make uh, uh, Hesse Street, Al Quadra Road, that little bit more commuter-friendly. Um, however... If you look at Golf Villas, Expo Golf Villas, they're called actually nowhere near Expo, right? They're actually over past uh, past the new airport. Um, 
But you can pick up uh, for rent a three-bed townhouse out there for about eighty to ninety thousand dirhams. And that was going to be my question. I know we don't have the pricing for this expo launch yet, yeah. but based on what we have seen in kind of the the town square commuter belts, what kind of savings are available for those who are willing to do the drive? I think look, let's take let's take Expo City, right, or Expo Golfers. They are they're eighty thousand dirhams now. Three years ago, you could pick up a townhouse in Town Square for 80,000 dirhams. Now, on Hauser, there are 150,000 dirhams. So that's a huge increment. It's only double, right? So, you know, the savings that you can get if you want to now go out east, um, then you, know, you can pick that up. But again, you're, you're pretty much on your own. I can't imagine two Taliban drivers going out to Gulf Expo Villas. However, the actual Expo City, you know, we've already got the mall there. That's ready to go. Now, it's not been delivered yet. You've also got supermarkets. You've got a hotel. And I think that one of you guys has stayed in that hotel, which is not likely to go anywhere. Oh, we all um, have. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, you've also got all of Expo in terms of what they're looking to do with that. You've still got the pavilion. So there's a lot more likely to be able to do if you're prepared, again, for a 20-minute commute to Dubai Marina. One minute of wild speculation. Uh, given how far out those Expo golf villas are from Expo um, and given the size of the cycle track... What can we infer about the actual ambitions for the final growth of that area? I think that you know the ambition is exactly that, right? They've got huge ambition to make this uh, this whole expo city exactly a city. I think that you know the t- the fact that they're actually talking about the the leisure facilities, the fact that they're saying apartments, villas, and townhouses. Um, you know, it's the sustainability side of it, the opportunity that I think it's going to give you by working or living out there. Some being remote, right? Again, I go into the office only once a week. Could I actually take the family and live up there? Twenty minutes from Dubai Marina could be consideration. 30 seconds. Is a cycle track the new swimming pool? Is it the new must-have for a development? I tell you what, it, you know, cycle tracks, they just put one down on, uh, on Jumeirah Beach. Um, I go down there, it's pretty busy. Uh, you know, maybe it is. I think running tracks, the one at Dubai Hills, again, I was just talking to Richard, I spend every Thursday morning at 5.30 running around that track. You know, I think it's a fantastic thing to be able to have in a community. Matt Gregory is the CCO of Hauser, speaking to us about the upcoming launch. March 15th is the date for the new residential communities to be announced by the guys at Expo City Dubai. Yeah, talking about must-have things in the community, I still remember the Jebel Ali Club. It's where I had my interview for my job at Dubai Eye about 18 years ago. Did the job. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. It is Friday, March the 3rd. The holy month of Ramadan is less than three weeks away, so let's look at the economics thereof. Bavesh Rawal is hotel manager for Le Meridian Dubai Hotel and Conference Centre. It's the massive hotel that we know as Le Meridian Airport Hotel. Bavesh, thanks so much for being with us. Appreciate your time this morning. It's a great pleasure to be here, Richard, and thank you for having me. Look, all of us in this room have been in Dubai an awfully long time. So we fully understand that Ramadan is, first and foremost, a very spiritual time of the year. But there is economics as well. And as a hotel manager, you have to look at that. So how are you gearing up, you and your team, for the holy month? I have been in Dubai for over 25 years, and I've seen a lot of ups and downs in Dubai. I would say Ramadan has always been a very, very holy month. And especially for this year, after the COVID, we've seen a huge demand when it comes to the uh, people looking for iftars and looking for corporate events and corporate parties. So I get that there's demand there, and I understand that. But yours is a very, very large hotel, isn't it? Limeridian Dubai Hotel and Conference Centre. Just remind us, how many restaurants or F&B outlets do you have? 
Richard, we've been one of the biggest food and beverage providers, I would say, within the uh, Dubai. We have over 17 restaurants and we have its cuisine some served from different areas, different regions. So it, it's it's a great F and B operations which is being done in the hotel. Exactly. I mean, you're, you're you're a big hotel. You're not some kind of boutique hotel. It's a significant operation there. How has the catering for the holy month changed in the 25 years that you've been here? I mean. Brandy and I have been here about as long as you have. And, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, it was fairly standard, wasn't it? You'd have a buffet. It was fine. There was lots of hummus. But obviously, tastes change, tastes evolve, and, and, and corporate demands evolve, Babash, don't they? No, absolutely, they do. And initially, Ramadan was celebrated by mainly Muslim families and the families which were basically fasting. But what the trend has been now, Ramadan has become a trend where people want to celebrate with their friends, with their other people as well. And we've seen is a lot of different cuisines as well, which has been evolved uh, in terms of the buffets. People prefer live stations. People do prefer the authenticity of the Arabic food. But we've seen a lot of diversions where, Muslim, where different nationalities of the people also want to celebrate iftars. And again, you know, Richard, we've seen a lot of demand where people actually want to do is a bigger, bigger parties and even home parties for iftar. So we do a lot of caterings and catering to their homes as well from our hotel married in Dubai. When do those bookings start, Babesh? We're, what, 3rd of March now. We're expecting, depending on the moon sighting committee, the holy month of Ramadan to start around the 22nd of March. When do the bookings start? You will be surprised, you know, and especially this year, we've seen over 30% of the inquiries, you know, uh, compared to the past years. And we already have around a couple of iftars already booked as well, you know, for our banquet rooms. So we have a banquet space, which is almost 20,000 square feet. We can do up to around 1,500 people together for iftars. And we have already booked around seven iftars in our banquet rooms already. Okay, so it, it, it's filling up. It is. It is absolutely. It's filling up much more faster than what we thought of. Fine. So the, from a corporate perspective, I understand that Iftar is a very significant moment and that's fine. And for the 28 or so days, you will be very busy. But what about before and after Iftar, particularly after Iftar and going into Suhoor, which wasn't really a thing, Brandy, I don't think, was it, when we arrived here in the late 90s? I don't remember going to many Suhoors in 99 or 2002. No, I would argue that that only sort of really became for corporate entertainment um, a thing in maybe the last five to ten years. But then I would say I then started to get more Sahur than Iftar invitations. So that's our intuition. What's actually happening, Bavesh? So uh, I think, again, Sahur has been, again, on a very, very high demand. And I'm sure, as you guys have been here for a very long time as well, we've seen a huge, huge, huge demand in terms of new activations where they make Ramadan tents. And the Ramadan tents, again, has been become a big trend where people start with their Ramadan iftar. There's a nice, beautiful buffet and oud players and everything. And then it falls into is the suhoor, which is, again, a late night snack together with the families and friends. But again, a huge demand for that. And you talked about oud players there and entertainment and musical entertainment. Obviously, during the holy month of Ramadan, it, it is not a big deal it's not a big part of what happens and yet some subtle and respectful music is fine how do you approach that during the holy month of ramadan as a major hotel i, th- I think people love to listen to these uh, little, uh, classical traditional uh, players mute players and things like those and i think it just gives a very different uh, phenomenal i think and uh, angle to the entire event when it comes to iftar 
let's with the business breakfast. So I'm going to ask you about competition. Clearly, every hotel manager in Dubai has got a Ramadan strategy. They've got iftars, they've got sahurs, they've got other things as well, and they've been planning it for some time as well. When you sit down with your team, either now on the third of March or maybe even a few weeks ago, and talked about, okay, how are we going to do it different or better from the literally hundreds of hotels which will also be pitching to corporate clients for these things? What do you say? Uh, that's a very good question, and I think it's all about to be in ahead of the game. And I would just like to share as well. Yesterday was our first iftar corporate invitation party, and we were the first ones to actually invite a lot of our corporate guests just to showcase what is different and what are the areas we are covering, especially in our big hotel, just to generate the demand. So hang on, the, the corporate iftar invitation party is that a thing? Yeah, it is. It is, and again, you know, because it's very important to showcase people what your hotel has to provide, what you have to provide to the guest, and especially after again COVID, a lot of corporates wants to invite and thank their associates, thanks their colleagues, thanks their people, you know, for all the hard work what they've done. And Ramadan being a month of giving, people to actually look into that and to invite a lot of corporates. So, in terms of hotel bookings, what are you seeing for the holy month of Ramadan? Mid March to mid April, compared to say February. See, this month uh, Ramadan has been earlier, so we haven't seen the same pace what we had last year as compared to month to month. But compared to Ramadan, the pace has been again very good. We haven't seen any dips. We're seeing a steady pickup in the hotel industry. Okay, so l- l- let me ask the question differently. If you look at the holy month of Ramadan and your occupancy rates, which is let's say twenty second of March to twenty second of April ballpark figure compared to say February how do the occupancy rates differ we've still seen the same demand the you know? same demand yeah, during seen, Ramadan absolutely we've seen the same demand we've seen people still coming in and obviously people have understood that Ramadan is a month but again Dubai being Dubai a lot of things are opened up it's not like what used to be before 25 years where but, you, but you have no major events there's no like last week was Gulf food wasn't it mm-hmm. there's none of that happening there's major demand drivers for Dubai but See, still the hotel occupancy rates are the same in Ramadan than hotel, in February o- hotel occupancy percentages are being same uh, what changes or what differs is the average rate so obviously when the demand in the city is higher, we are able to charge is much more higher average rate. But obviously when the months of Ramadan comes and when there's not much of a demand, the occupancy is still stable, but we obviously see a dip in the ADRs. Babash, really appreciate you joining us this morning to talk about this. About three weeks or so until the holy month of Ramadan, Babash. Raval is the hotel manager for Le Meridian Dubai Hotel and Conference Centre. Appreciate your time this morning. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.